Welcome, Ghosties, to episode 95 of the Ghost Lads podcast. Today, we sat down with John Marcantoni Rosa, the playwright of Puerto Rican Nocturne, which is going to be opening at The Bug on August 5th. We discussed his heritage, legacy, toxic masculinity, and how it seeps into almost everything these days. And the importance in telling both sides, I think, comes out quite clear. Remember, folks, focus on being an elder. Now, Dan, give us war by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. That's podcast. Today's guest is John Marcantoni Rosa. Is that correct? Am I saying uh, it right? Yes. Yeah, awesome. you, you pronounce it better than most. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I was I wanted to make sure I didn't I didn't butcher it too badly. Playwright in town, the play right now that you um have produced, it's in the works soon to open, is Puerto Rican Nocturne. Yes. Tell me about this play. What inspired it? Uh, so the, the, the play is about the Cerro Maravilla murders or really the aftermath of them. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, the situation in Puerto Rico, um, as, as some know, as some may not know, uh, is that the U S um, invaded Puerto Rico at the end of the 19th century, um, in the aftermath of the Spanish American war, they've occupied Puerto Rico ever since, uh, the first 60 years or the first 50 years of of the occupation, uh, Puerto Rico was under uh, military dictatorship um, that, that was entirely run by American generals. Um, and then in 1948, uh, Puerto Rico was granted some degree of self-governance, which led to its current status as um, the Estado Libre, mm -hmm. uh, which means a free state. Um, it, it was meant to be a much more equitable relationship. It never became that, however. Um, and it started uh, in the aftermath in 1950, there was a, a, a revolution in Puerto Rico um, led by uh, the, well, in, in Puerto Rico, we use the term nationalist different than it, the term gets used here in the US. Mm. Uh, we're we're independent, he says, we want um, our country to be free. And uh, so there was a, a nationalist uprising led by Pedro Abiso Campos um kind of the most famous independence leader and the response to that was to give puerto rico a level of autonomy but in all actuality it was a colony mm. they remained a colony um just with local governance um and in 1978 um there was uh the the independence movement started gaining traction again um particularly amongst college students and other young people. And um, the FBI, uh, along with the help of the San Juan and Puerto Rico police departments, um, infiltrated a lot of these groups uh, using undercover agents. Uh, more often than not, they were recruited in high school. Mm. Um, there was a very big uh, anti-communist 
bent to this whole operation and this being the Cold War. Um, the Cold War in Puerto Rico had a particular significance because of the Cuban Revolution. Um, so, so basically the United States, part of why they treated Cuba the way they did after its revolution was to scare Puerto Rico mm -hmm. and keep it from trying to get independence. So it was basically, look what we're doing to Cuba, we can do this to you too. Mm -hmm. um, and so a, a lot of anti-communist uh, fervor, um, this one cop uh, who, was, who was a high school recruit, he was recruited when he was 16. Um, his name was Alejandro Gonzalez Malave. He, um, he not only was a staunch anti-communist, um, his father very much wanted to be an American and raised uh, Gonzalez Malave to see himself as an American and not as a Puerto Rican, and in fact, to see Puerto Ricans as subhuman. Um, so even though he was born and raised as a Puerto Rican, um, he, he definitely had a very self-hating complex. And when he was recruited, he actually told the recruiter that he'd be willing to do this work for free. And also that, um, independent, he says, don't deserve to live. Mm. And the guy still recruited him. <laughs> um, and then four years later, uh, he, in an attempt really to, to try to boost his career, but also there was definitely something very personal about it uh, for him. Um, he, and, and, and Gonzalez Malave was very successful as an undercover agent. Mm. Um, and so he was pretty well known in, in the department he was in and he, or that he was tied to. And he convinced a group of cops um, 10 in total, it ended up being, he, he actually only told like three guys and then they got a bunch of other people because they were like, oh, we could do this and, and it, it'll be good for our careers. Mm. And uh, they ambushed the activists um, who operated under Gonzalez Malave. Gonzalez Malave had become the leader of a, of a small cell mm. of about five, uh, five activists. And um, originally there were, there were going to be five victims. Uh, three of them ended up dropping out at the last minute that day and it ended up just being two, mm. one of them a teenager. And um, the, the cops not only executed them, they also beat them severely. Um, and the, the coroner's report was that had they not been shot, they would have died just from the beating. Um, and in the aftermath, they they tried to sell the story that it was in self-defense. They said that the activists shot first, that they were armed. Um, and then that story quickly fell apart. Um, and that was the beginning of a 14 year odyssey of trials and scandals and a bunch of uh, interrelated conflicts that came up that it meant many of them only like slightly relating to the murders themselves, but they still got thrown in with everything else. And um, as for the, the, the question of, of why I wanted to tell the story, mm -hmm. um, it, I, I've, so I, I grew up going back and forth between the States and, and the island. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been very strong. I always had a very strong connection to my Puerto Ricanness. And, um, and, you know, I, me, me and my brother were one of the few American cousins, the cousins that grew up in the U.S. 
um, who learned Spanish and we made the culture very central to our lives. Um, and I've, I've always identified as, as Puerto Rican, you know, first, second, third, and last. And I'm also a huge history buff. And so um, the, these events, events like Cerro Maravilla, I was always interested in dramatizing. Mm. But the, the specific reason why I did this story was in 2012, um, the first book that I wrote that got me international attention was a book called The Peace of San Sebastian. And there's a minor but important character in that book um, named Adria. Mm-hmm. And I used the Cerro Maravilla murders and her being the mother of one of the victims as a plot point in that book. Yeah. And the whole thing was that she was this uh, former activist who has gone into sort of a self-exile in this neighborhood called La Perla, which is um, a, a very infamous slum in Puerto Rico. And um, <clears throat> when I was doing events for the book, um, in New York, because uh, I, I got brought under the wing of this writer named Nelson Dennis. We had a, a really big book at the time called War Against All Puerto Ricans. And he advocated for my book. That's why I was able to, to get the notice that I got for it. Um, and, and so I was doing uh, a reading event in, in New York City and a few readers um, came up to me and they wanted to know about Adria's past. And they were like, oh, are you ever going to do a sequel, uh, sequel or I guess prequel to this? And, um, and that was like the initial seed. Um, but then when I started researching it, and it was originally going to be a book, um, I, I was struck by, I was struck by a few things and, and particularly that the, the women of this story are pretty much excluded mm. um, in all of the reporting and the research. Like there's just hundred percent focus on the men and um, Gonzalez Malave uh, was married at the time of the murders um, and uh, a 20 year old being married in 1978 Puerto Rico wasn't unusual, mm-hmm. um, but he, he was married the woman he was married to, he met at an independentista party <laughs> and she was a part of the whole groups and all. And, and the, the only thing that I could find about her was that he apparently in the aftermath convinced her to take a job um, as a secretary at the precinct he worked at, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really peculiar <laughs> um, detail. And then within a year, she had divorced him. Hmm. And the the thing is, is that all of the cops throughout Puerto Rico knew what the real story was before anyone else did. Mm -hmm. And there's a crazy side story, which I'd be happy to get into later, um, where basically a cop held a press conference where he said, oh, I'll tell you about the real story of San Maravilla. And so there was a lot of holes that were being poked publicly, but clearly she heard what the real story was. He had been bullshitting her and she walked out. Like that was just clear as day, but like nobody really focused on that. And I was like, this is so incredibly fascinating what it would be to be 
the spouse of this person. Mm. And you've been with them for four years and you thought they were this one way. And it not only turns out that they're a completely different person, they have completely different beliefs. They also killed two people. Yeah. And what does that mean for you? Because you fall under that category too of mm. people that they disagree with. Um, and it must've been terrifying. I was like, why didn't anyone, why wasn't anyone interested in this? But, um, but then also with the character of Adria, the thing that really excited me about her was she, in, in order for her to have the future in the book that I wrote, um, it would mean that she would have to reject all attempts to try to turn this into, um, into a cause, into protesting what happened to her son, she flees it. She mm. goes into exile. Mm. And we, we live in a time where kind of like activism is so very central. And when something bad happens, like you're, you're supposed to turn it into something empowering, inspiring. And that's not her. She goes her own route. And I thought that that would be a really interesting character to to write, mm -hmm. um, who just pretty much every single time that she gets pushed in a certain direction, she rejects it because she has to make her own path. Yeah. And I I really saw, you know, and, and I don't want to give away what happens to Gonzalez Malave yeah. um, as that's central to the story, but... Um, I, I saw pretty quickly that there was a clear contrast between these two characters of a person who begins the story with no power and ends it with power and a person who begins the story with power and ends it without power. And following those two courses, I, I quickly realized that Adria and Gonzo were the most interesting characters to me mm -hmm. from all of the scandals and everything and and that a play was the best way of of telling that story yeah who do you find yourself connected to the most i feel like there's this there's a a fighter's spirit in you as you're talking now and i wonder where you saw that being reflected the most out of those two people um you, you know there's I mean, I, I, I feel especially more and more and given some things that have happened to me in, in the last couple of years, um, I feel a lot like Adria a lot of days. That <laughs> um, it's hard to find reasons to, to fight or to think that the things you do matter. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've always been drawn to rebels and I've always been drawn to people who... Um, who just don't follow the company line, you know? And so I relate to her a lot. Um, but there's also a lot of cynicism and, and anger that I relate to in, in Gonzo sometimes, mm. you know? Um, and, you know, I mean, that, that's, the, <laughs> that, that, that's the part of oneself you, you don't always want to admit, but it's like sometimes th this world just, makes you furious and 
I, I, I don't agree with anything that Gonzo says and does, but mm. I understand, I understand the anger that mm. he feels. You understand his motivations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause I mean, it, his motivations really were to get recognized. He wanted to be seen and, um, he really felt he was doing something heroic and noble. And um, that sort of misguided heroism, I think, um, is especially prevalent amongst men. Mm-hmm. You're, you're definitely kind of raised to, especially Latino men, we're, we're raised to always kind of be on a mission and, um, and to kind of be the center of attention and larger than life, or at least that's how I was raised. But maybe my family was just really dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Did did you, you, you talk about this, um, this, this male expectation, this traditionalized Mm -hmm. expectation for what men are supposed to be. Do you find yourself bucking against that regularly, if at all? Oh, absolutely. Did that that something come on later? No, absolutely. I mean, um, I used to get teased about it when I was when I was a little kid because my my brother's a very like hyper masculine macho type, mm. um, and uh, and I was always the sensitive creative one, um, and I I got involved in theater very young when I was six I started taking acting classes, and um, there's always been something kind of effeminate about me, and. I embrace that feminine energy in myself. And I, um, you know, I, my, my kind of take on masculinity is that the version of masculinity we're in now is this very um, ultra repressed reaction to homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before the gay rights movement really caught on, you know, before Stonewall, um, men were very cultured and it was like totally acceptable for a man to dance and sing and um you know wear nice clothes and be obsessed about their hair and their you know they had their clones and their style and you know men, men were in a lot of ways like if you look at depictions of men particularly in like the 40s and 50s there was a lot of femininity in that mm-hmm. and then i i feel like once um once gay culture started becoming more prevalent, uh, you had this class of men in this country, which is already, you know, a puritanical country, as we all know. Mm. Um, they're just like, no, we, we, we can't be those cultured effects. So we have to be mm. uh, Neanderthals, you know, we have to be just like the most base qualities of a man. Um, and I think that's what's really defined masculinity ever since. And it's, it's a fucking shame. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Can I curse? Oh, you, yeah. You can absolutely oh, cuss okay. on her. It's <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a huge shame. Um, you know, men, we're our own worst enemies, you know. And and the the worst part about it is that when when we give in to our worst tendencies, the people we hurt the most are are women, and um, and also our children too. You know, and it's, and I I don't think men realize how destructive those base tendencies are, you know? So I've, I've always pushed back against that. I've I've always found it reprehensible. 
do you find any of i mean through that idea um of men kind of being afraid to relinquish their their hold on those those basic tenets of what they think manhood to be do you find that 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 is a major theme in your your description of gonzo in the play uh yeah yeah and i mean not not just this work i mean also past works of mine Mm -hmm. um i've been very concerned about the way men move in the world and portray themselves and how they treat others um gonzo gonzo to me was always a a a portrait of a boy trying to be a man Mm -hmm. being that he you know, you, you get recruited when you're 16 years old to be an undercover cop. You're given this immense amount of power yeah. at, at an age where you're already a cocky little shit. <laughs> and then <laughs> on top of it, like you have actual power. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, I was, when I was in high school, I actually knew an undercover cop. Wow. Um, and he hung out with the theater kids um and uh he you know it was always very strange i mean it was very cocksure and very um obnoxious um <laughs> incredibly obnoxious you know because he he felt like he could get away with anything mm-hmm. you know and I, I remember um he he had like a he had a, a police light um, like a little portable one that you could put on the dashboard mm-hmm. and he would like turn it on along with like the siren so that he could speed and get away with it and like cut through red lights and all like a teenager would. Right. Yeah. Um, Some grown, grown ass uh, cops do that now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he was very boastful and we would just like tease people relentlessly. And um, it, there was, there, there were stories that apparently he didn't like taking no for an answer from women either, that he'd get mm-hmm. really, um, like not violent with them, but definitely like kind of berate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so it's a, it a guy I really did not like very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, on the other hand, whenever there would be raids in the school, like you'd be like going to the bathroom, you'd pass by and you'd be like, hey, don't go to that bathroom, go to the other one. Mm-hmm. There's about to be some cops there or... Um, I remember one time he told a bunch of us at a rehearsal, like, hey, uh, t- tomorrow you might want to show up to school late. And it was because, like, there was a huge raid of a bunch of uh, students' lockers and stuff like that. And so, you know, like, when you hear things like that, you're you're kind of, like, grateful that the guy's on your side a little, but he's still a reprehensible prick. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I had some experience with someone like that in writing Gonzo. And, and what really... Uh, stood out to me was a lack of identity he has no self and that's mm. something i i talked to uh diego the the actor who plays him uh, mm. diego estrada um i i told him like he he is always most at home when he's not himself and so like when he's interacting with his wife and she's trying to like pinpoint who he is exactly he doesn't know he never developed that sense of self um, aside from cop. I'm just a cop. 
you know, but I'm a cop who lies. I'm a cop who lies a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, and so I, I to, to go back to the thing with masculinity, um, he, I, I think that there's, there's a hole that's in a lot of men when, when they're trying to put on the suit of masculinity that society hands them and it doesn't fit them quite right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I think that's where a lot of the, the younger generation trying to break up and break down gender norms um, has, has some origin. And I think it's, they're probably dealing with it in a much healthier way than, than my generation did mm-hmm. um, and previous ones be because so many people just don't fit that mold. And it's also a mold that was like designed decades ago in a very different world than the one that we live in. And I, I don't think that men in general are being brought up for the world as it is. They're, they're being brought up in, in a world that not only no longer exists, but even when it did exist, didn't exist in the way that it does in their mythology. You know, where like, if, if a man wants something, he just gets it. Like, it was never really that way. But there's a sense mm-hmm. that like, oh, but, but a, a guy could just get away with anything. And it's like, yeah. oh, that's not really the reality. Yeah. But once you hang on to that mythology, when the world doesn't represent what you thought it was always supposed to be, there's that feeling of betrayal. And I think that especially a lot of young men feel that way. You know, it's like, oh, I, I thought I, I should be able to get a girl's attention or I should be able to get a job really easy. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I think also that gets compounded by um, a sense in America that the best times are long in the past. And that like, oh, you know, my father or my grandfather or my great grandfather, they were able to to make something out of nothing and and now like what do i have you know like this gutted manufacturing base there's these low-paying jobs that expect a whole ton from you there's Mm. um you know maybe you don't want to go to college maybe college isn't the thing for you and it's like well where do i go and you don't have somebody in your life who can be like hey there's actually a lot of options for you Mm. all right there's tech schools there's you know taking up a trade there's something for you and they don't have that guidance and um that feeling of being lost, I mean, it, it leads to extremism. And that's that's what we're seeing today. And I think Gonzo was was the same way that he was promised, he was promised a certain experience when he was infiltrating these groups. Mm-hmm. He, he was really promised like a James Bond movie, basically. It's like, you're going undercover and these are dangerous people. And then, you know, he gets into these groups and for the most part, it's a bunch of like, you know, 20 something college students who, you know, half of them are probably there because they're trying to pick up somebody. And, you know, like the, the, the politics is like secondary. And even for the most fervent people, they're not criminals. And mm. what he was expecting was criminals. He was expecting killers. And one of the things that, you know, that media uh, depicts is kind of like violence is very common. And in fact, violence isn't common. Hmm. 
and the people who commit violence are a, a stark minority of people actually will commit violence and particularly kill people. Yeah, that's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so he goes into this environment thinking that he's about to go into a John Wayne Western. And instead he finds, oh, it's just a bunch of meetings and speeches and we sit around and don't do much. <laughs> where's the action? You know, the, yeah. do you ever see heat? Oh yeah. Heat. Yeah. yeah you know, where's the juice? Give me the juice. You know, Man. for me, the action <laughs> is the juice, John. Yes. The action is the juice. Yes. That's right. it. That's it. Um, <laughs> Tom Sizemore at his best. <laughs> yeah but, yeah before things went south for him um yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh but yeah like that's that's what he was wanting and and i think when when in reality didn't match that expectation he did something incredibly reckless irresponsible and painful to mm-hmm. a lot of other people and, and really his, his actions if they weren't as destructive as they were because it, th- this event like reverberates in Puerto Rico to today. It's 44 years later. Yeah. still gets talked about. There's still repercussions from it. Mm. And it was honestly the act of a stupid, reckless kid. Um, and if it wasn't that destructive, it would be absurd what, what he did and how he did it. Yeah. I, I was going through some of the pages in, in preparation of this, and I found, without giving anything away, the the last moment of this play to be very i mean intense there's there's a it's it, it's it's beautiful and and the way i feel like you sum you sum summon sum up the play that's what i was trying to get to um what are some of your hopes in terms of what people take away from this experience both as a performer in it and the people that come to see it? Um, you know, the from the performance angle, I, I wrote this play, being, being that I, I grew up an actor um, and kind of got into playwriting because me and my friends didn't like the kind of roles that, that we were getting as teenagers. Um, so it was like, hey, write our own roles. Um, I really put a lot of emphasis on on making sure that every character in the play has a big moment. That every every actor in this play, no matter how small their role is, they they get to steal the show for a little bit. And I think that people are going to find. And I've already seen it in in the rehearsals. Uh, Noemi, our director, has gotten some amazing per- performances out of this cast and. Uh, I, I, w- I want to say all but one, one, maybe two of the actors have done a lot of plays with Su Teatro, but they haven't gotten many opportunities outside of Su Teatro. And I think this is a play that for, for those actors, it, it'll be able to show the audiences here in Denver uh, that they're capable of a lot. They have a lot of tools in their toolbox and a lot of ability and I hope it opens up even more opportunities for them um not that Suteatri doesn't give them some good opportunities but you know as an actor you don't want to just stay stagnant in one place you want to try out new things and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how people respond to their performances nice wonderful um for you is there any 
um, the word I'm looking for is like any connection you find in terms of your legacy through this piece and the and the subsequent pieces you've written around it. Is it something that you're exercising through that or discovering even now through multiple texts on it? Uh, well, I'm, I'm 38. I don't know how much I want to like think about legacy just yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but no, my, my writing, the, the biggest thing that, that I want people to take away from my writing, um, is I, my, my books because of all dispute with my previous publishers um all of my books are are out of print mm. um but my short stories and and articles and uh things like that and some chapter excerpts from these books they're online in a lot of different venues um mm. such as across the margin and uh minor lits and places like that um pink magazine another one yeah. but i so you you can read my work. You can Google me, find it. But the the biggest takeaway that I I would want people to have is, even though I write about Puerto Ricans a lot in my work, I, I love writing about my people. I love writing about um, our culture. That the stories also are very universal and even more so that these are stories that try on a lot of different hats. I've tried a lot of different genres. I'm not trying to tell the same old stories. I'm not trying to imitate any other Latin American or Latino writer. Um, I'm, I'm following my own path and writing the kind of stories I want to write. Some mm -hmm. of them is, are crime fiction. Some of it's comedy. Some of it's surreal uh, quasi-fantastical kind of work. Some of it's very experimental. Um, th this play is very experimental. You know, I borrowed a lot from Samuel Beckett um, in this play, um, pr particularly the the short play of his called Play, mm. um, which, uh, which if anybody listening out there wants to check it out on YouTube, if you type in Play Anthony Minghella, um, he was the director of it. He also directed English Patient, Tyler Miss Ripley. In, I think it was 2000, he did a short film with Alan Rickman and Kristen Scott Thomas. It's Kristen Scott Thomas. And their heads are in jars. <laughs> They're sticking out of jars. They're covered in mud. And it's, um, there, there's another actress, but she's less well-known, another British actress. Um, and play is three dueling monologues said, said at high speed and the monologue goes for five minutes and then it repeats hmm. and the second time it repeats the the text deteriorates like some of the lines start um, being cut off halfway um, it becomes more and more distorted um, and it's it's the story of an affair. Uh, this man uh, cheats on his wife. His wife finds out, and it's about the disintegration of their marriage in the aftermath. Um, but it's all told in this hyperkinetic fashion. And there's a scene in in this play, um, the circus scene, which is the last scene in Act One, 
where I, I do a dueling monologue and I do it in, in the style that Samuel Beckett does it. Um, and that was incredibly fun to write. But, uh, you know, I, being that I, I, I used to work in the publishing sphere and I used to uh, have a publishing house for a time. Um, I, one of the big frustrations that I had with Latino writers um, was them not breaking out of the box that the white establishment put them in. And I was always like, you know, I, I want non-immigration, non-identity stories. There's too many of them and they're actually not very interesting subjects. Mm -hmm. You can only say so much about immigration. You know, you can only say so much about identity until it just becomes like the same story again and again. So, you know, um, I think I, I said, uh, when I launched the company, it was an interview I did where I, I, I said, if I could find a writer who wrote a, a Peruvian monster story where like the monster is like from these old Indian myths, mm -hmm. I think that would be amazing for one thing. Uh, and I would want to represent a book like that. I would want, I want to represent books that push genre, that create their own genres. And I mean, I, and this is one of the things of, of reading a lot of books. And most of the books that I read aren't books from the US, they're, they're from elsewhere. Mm. And when I read books from around Latin America, there's no limits because they don't have this nonsense from the American publishing industry. Like they're just telling their stories. And it's liberating to see that. And I wish that more Latino writers would stop looking within, stop looking, looking within the US, like look outside. You have these homelands with amazing cultures and amazing histories, amazing literature, amazing art, like connect with it. The US is not the be all end all. It's one country in a world of almost 200 countries, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I encourage that of everyone, no matter who you are, like be a person of the world. And so to, to go, to not veer too far from your question, you know, when people read my work, I don't want them to be like, oh yeah, he's just like every other Puerto Rican writer. He's just like any other Latino writer. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is just a good fucking writer. And he infuses his culture. His culture is definitely there, but he will do anything. He'll tell any kind of story and I never know what I'm going to get when I check out John Mark and Tony. You know, that, yeah. that's what I want people to say. Absolutely. John, I'm really interested to hear about what was what were some of your influences, the things that inspired you to, to pick up a pen and look at performance? Oh, man, there's so many, so many great writers. Um, you know, and one of my biggest influences is Hubert Selby Jr., uh, who... You, you might not have heard of his name, but you've probably heard of either Last Essay at the Brooklyn or Requiem for a Dream. Oh, yeah, and yeah. those are both books of his. Uh, he was a very, a very daring, very uh, experimental writer. His, his writing style is completely unique. I mean, even though there's, there's a lot of writers that do stream of consciousness, but he, he, he had a whole orthography of the way that he structured his stories, the way he structured his dialogue and his narrative, everything ran together, but you could always tell when he was doing one or the other. 
Um, he kind of did very unorthodox punctuation and things like that. Um, that really immersed you in the writing because his stories, the, his style, it, it made you feel like you were on the streets with these characters and made you feel like you were in their heads mm. and, um, and going through the struggles that they were going through. And he, he very often wrote about the, the underprivileged, the, the misfits of society, the outcasts. Um, his first book, Last Sex at the Brooklyn, was actually banned in the U.S. for several years. Wow. Um, and Allen Ginsberg helped him uh, through a lawsuit with, that, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court to get it unbanned. Uh, but the reason it was banned is because it portrayed uh, gay and transsexual um, relationships and portrayed them in a humanistic way, you know, not like making them monsters or anything, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this being the 1950s, of course, you know, that wasn't going to fly. Um, and he, he always wrote from a place of empathy, and that was his biggest thing, was even if I'm writing the most cruel, monstrous character, I want you to empathize with them. And uh, that always became a coda for me. Um, and, and, you know, his, his style, like I mentioned before, was just very kinetic. Um, and, and that's the kind of writing I've been attracted to, whether it's like Elmer Leonard or Richard Price, where it's like it's, it's dialogue that just hops off the page. Um, and then, you know, with, with plays, I mean, Beckett, O'Neill, the, the great classics, but probably Tennessee Williams the most mm. of anyone. Um, just in that he, you know, the, the man wrote melodramas, like he wrote some over-the-top melodramas that could, that you, you could just change them to Spanish in their telenovelas, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so Southern Gothic is not that far uh, removed from it. Um, but he was also creating these indelible, unforgettable characters who were grounded in a, a kind of vulnerable humanity that, that I, I don't think a lot of writers today, no matter who they are, I, I don't think that they're as open to being. Um, a lot of writers try to stay away from vulnerable over the top characters. They want characters who are cool. They want characters who are uh, stoic, who are uh, oftentimes quip machines. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. a one liner after one liner after one liner. Um, or they're just characters that don't have a lot of imperfections. And what, what I like about the writers of, of the 50s and 60s was they really embraced the imperfections of their characters, you know, and then from Latin America and Spain, I mean, Cervantes, Cervantes did it all in Don Quixote, you know, is every, he, he was doing styles of writing that hadn't even been born yet. Um, he even has a, a dream sequence in Don Quixote where he uses almost Freudian um, logic to dissect this dream. Yeah. And it's 300 years before Freud is even born. You know, mm. I mean, the, the man was a genius, but I really think it was it, it was writing without any sort of limitations. And whether writers are going through an MFA program or so many writers get stuck in the hell that is academia um, or they get stuck in in this sort of like high society 
world of writing that's very staid and very much in a bubble. Um, the sort of white progressive trope of these sort of like wealthy writers who all want to feign some sort of victimization, even though they're like living off of a trust fund. Um, and in and even even in theater, um, there's a real push toward toward playwriting that is standardized mm. in some sort of way. That it's like th this is the way you write dialogue. This is the way you write a scene. This is the way you structure a play. This is the way you format a play. And it's like. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good to know your basics. It's good to know the skeleton of things when you're just learning it. But so many writers won't even go beyond that skeleton. They won't even push the bounds of what they can possibly do. And I, I think that because MFA programs and, um, and writing programs, whether they're theatrical or literary, they've become so predominant in culture. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a lot of ways, it become professionalized um, and people can build up careers around them that we forget how new they are. They're completely new. Like in 1984, when I was born, there were hardly any MFA programs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they, like, they, like there was Iowa Writers Workshop and that was about it. You know, or maybe like a writing class at Berkeley or a writing class at NYU. Uh, but otherwise, you didn't have that shit. Um, and that was within my lifetime. And the writers who existed before that, and the, this is also why reading non-American writers is, is really important, and I want to mention a couple of them, but like there used to be a freedom to how you express yourself and a freedom to how you tell stories, whereas now you tell a story that resonates with another person that they love. Um, and that should be all that matters. But then you show it to another person and they're like, how, you know, this isn't the way that you write. This isn't the way you do this, this is the way you do that. And it's like, based on what? Mm. It's like, well, it was based on this book I read. Well, like, I don't give a shit. I never read that book. Yeah. <laughs> what do I care what that person has to say? But I, I had that experience. Um, where the, the book I mentioned before, Feast of St. Sebastian, mm -hmm. you know, Nelson Dennis is a New York Times bestselling writer. He has the hottest book in, in the Latino sphere at that time. Um, and he loves my fucking book. And he writes a review for it, puts it into Latino Rebels, puts it in a bunch of other news sites, and is just praising me. And I'm feeling on top of the world. The same day that that happens, I had submitted the book to another reviewer, this uh, Twitter book blogger, I don't even remember their name. Mm. Um, and that person contacted me the same day that his review went out, his glowing review goes out. And she told me that she couldn't make it to the second page because I clearly don't know how to write. <laughs> and that is like, that. that's the artistic experience in a nutshell. <laughs> mm -hmm. But- God. I mean, obviously, like this, this person was like this self-published nobody. I'm going to go with the best-selling author, in his opinion. But also, there are so many people who wouldn't go that track. There are so many people who would just hold on to like that negative feedback and be like, "No, that that's the problem with me. I need to like rein back my style. I need to rein back my voice." Um, and and I, I feel that's the wrong impulse. It, it, I mean, criticism 
absolutely essential. This play, we actually just changed the scene last night. It's oh, wow. a week before the premiere. We just changed the, um, this whole scene. Um, and you know that, that's the beauty of theater is that collaboration, that openness. But you know, there's good criticism and there's bad criticism. Um, but, but to go back, because uh, I do just want to mention these Latin American writers, Julio Cortazar was a huge influence on me. Mm. Um, he was an Argentinian writer uh, who, who spent his time going back and forth between Argentina and France. Um, but he wrote a book called Rayuela, which, uh, which means um, hopscotch. Mm. And the book is written like a game of hopscotch, where at the end of the chapter, it'll say, so like, you know, a hopscotch, like you, you have all these numbers. And you might jump from number one to number four. And that's what he does with the chapters, you know? And uh-huh. he has you not only jump ahead in chapters, but he also has, so the, the book is broken up into three parts and there's two different narratives. And then the third one is our alternate scenes. There are alternate scenes of what you had just read in that chapter, but from mm-hmm. another character's point of view. Uh-huh. <laughs> And, um, or he changes like the entire tone, like it's a dramatic scene and then becomes comedic, mm-hmm. you know? And th- this book is a classic, it's also massive. It's like, it's like almost a thousand pages long, um, but it's, it's just a fun, inventive book that was, that if he had gone through an MFA program, they would have told him, oh no, that'll never be published. Yeah. And this is why you don't go through those things, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but finally, the last person I want to mention is just Juan Jose Sayer, um, who his book, El Entenado, is like probably the most influential book um, I've ever read. Um, and it's, a, it's also an Argentinian book. And it's this examination of um, this young boy during the, the conquista, um, the conquest of the Americas. He, he's a cabin boy on a Spanish galleon that ends up in Argentina. And when they land, this Native American tribe kills all of them and kidnaps him. And he stays with them for 10 years. And then he ends up going back to Spain. And he spends the rest of the book trying to analyze this culture that he just experienced. Because what these, what these people in this tribe do is they kidnap the people around them like once a year have them witness this like insane cannibalistic orgy. And then they keep them for a few weeks more, a few months more. And outside of that ceremony, this culture is completely repressed. (laughs) And it's very like super organized. You would never know that people have sex until you see a woman is pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, They're very like prude and refined and what he ends up figuring out is that um, essentially this tribe is hyper aware of the fact that nature can consume them at any time Mm -hmm. and that they can devolve into chaos at any time and that they are subject to this planet that surrounds them that can destroy them at any moment. And they're also subject to their worst base impulses Mm -hmm. and so they have this ceremony once a year to remind them of what would happen if they don't keep their shit together if they don't keep an orderly society 
And the reason why they get their neighbors is because they believe themselves to be the superior culture. And they see themselves as like the, the beacon of humanity. And they're trying to educate their neighbors on what they know yeah. <laughs> and, to, and let them go back to like spread the gospel kind of thing. And, and the book becomes like a contrast where we're basically Western civilization is exactly like this tribe, just this tribe is a microcosm of our civilization. Mm. And that instead of a cannibalistic orgy, we have wars. Mm -hmm. And wars are what remind us that, hey, at any moment we can devolve into chaos. You know, but what Western civilization lacks is the regard for nature and the regard for the natural world and the fact that we're subject to it and not the other way around. Yeah. So that that book like impacts me every day, I think of it. That's really interesting. Like, at first when you were describing it, it was like it's like the purge before Ethan Hawke. Uh, <laughs> but it's actually it seems much deeper than that. It's almost as if they're they're trying to take control of the chaos just once. Right. Yeah. I like to to give in to all that. It's really that's really that's really quite powerful. Yeah. You've you've talked Yeah, and it, there's about, a Go go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say there there is an English translation of the book called The Witness. Mm. If you ever want to check it out. And it's a short book. It's like 180 pages, but it's amazing what they do with it. Definitely. Yeah, but I, I think I, that one really jumps out at me. I might check that out for sure. You've talked about your journey from a professional standpoint as this artist, this author, you've kind of been th thrown obstacles to your own voice. And we've, we've been in communication um, on Instagram talking about some, some really like close to your heart kind of um, concepts. One of the questions I have from those side conversations and, and, and speaking with you now is, where do you find yourself the most free in your artistry and as yourself? Oh, yeah, uh, that's a much deeper question. You know, my, I'll answer the artistry part second because mm. uh, it's more difficult, but Personally, where I, where I feel most like of myself, you know, I'm I'm a father. Uh, my my kids are the center of my of my world, um, and I feel most grounded with them. Um, you know, my my cats also <laughs> they're yeah. my they're my fur children, mm -hmm. um, but I I also feel very grounded in myself in, in urban environments because there, there's like a buzz and energy to urban environments that, that speaks to me and energizes me. But then also I'm, I'm a beach kid, man. <laughs> I'm a beach boy. I love the fucking beach. I love the coast and the, the colors of the sunsets and rises, the sound of the ocean, the, you know, I mean, in Puerto Rico, the mountains go all the way up to the to the water, yeah. and exploring nature and, and feeling that that connection there. But I, I'm one of those people like I need a, a balance of the two. But I definitely lean a little more towards cities. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it, it's just an it's an experience in life man you know it's it's like so some days i just want to stay at home and cook and like cooking is another thing i really love but i want to cook and just like hang out in my house other days i want to be out i want to explore my neighborhood explore the city go to the mountains whatever um you know i i really love being with people i love talking to people and and making new friends and um having relationships with people and like that that sort of interconnectedness it, it really feeds me a lot and i i feel like that complements the the writing aspect, which is, um, I, I feel like you need a connection to the world you live in in order to be a good writer because yeah. your characters need to come from this place of truth. And yourself is oftentimes not the greatest barometer of truth. Uh, we, we carry with ourselves a lot of baggage, a lot of attachments, a lot of false perceptions and ideas um, about ourselves and also about others. And we need to, we need that interchange with someone else to get outside of our own heads and outside of our own egos, you know? And that's, I mean, the, the Buddha in, in the Heart Sutra, when he talks about, you know, the, that you by yourself are nothing. You are nothing until you connect to another person or another thing. You're, you only exist in relation to something else mm -hmm. because you by yourself are just a floating ego. And until, until you give back to the world around you, all you're doing is feeding that ego. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I meditate on those things and those things center me. Um, the artistic sphere, I've, really struggled with the last few years. Um, and I was just talking to my lady about this the other day. Uh, she's another person who grounds me, but she's shy. She wouldn't want me talking about that, but <laughs> that, that's for offline. I got <laughs> you, I got you, I got you. But, but, but no, um, but, but no, like artistically, you know, we were talking about this the other day, like, I, I I got to experience in the publishing world, I got to experience a certain level um, working with people, representing writers, uh, getting my own work out there. And um, I walked away from all of it. And theater, like, like basically I got into the literary world because I became a father when I was 22. And my ex-wife was not uh, very supportive of me doing theater. Mm -hmm. And so writing books was a way of, and working in publishing was a way of uh, getting around that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could write at any time. I could write when the kids are in bed. Um, I, I don't have to be in a theater for eight hours, you know? Um, and and yet, you know, like I, I just missed the stage. I missed it incredibly. Um, and uh, and I experienced some loss. I, I lost some people a few years ago, and uh, and that kind of brought me back to theater. But 
also Hurricane Maria brought me back to theater too, because I, some New York friends um, asked me to write a short piece for a fundraiser they were doing for the island. Mm. And, and, um, and that experience made me turn Puerto Rican now turn into a play um, when it had, it had been a book up until then. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, with the dissolution of my marriage, with losing a very good friend of mine, and also with butting my head up against this wall that I felt where all these writers who I represented never got over a certain hump. And all these projects that I worked on never got the recognition that they deserved. And where I felt like I'm screaming into a void, all the different things with the arts world, particularly the literary world is stagnant. Everybody is, everybody's just in a circle patting themselves on the back you know like they're they're looking at each other as opposed to looking out at the world around them they're not branching out and the world's the the whole scene has just become stale and dull and the most they could come up with was like well hey let's find some black and brown writers who we can also make stale and dull hmm. And, and take off all their edges and make them the most boring version of us, um, us being white people. Mm. And I was like, this isn't me. This isn't my thing. Um, where do I find grounding in this? And, you know, you, you mentioned we had talked on Instagram and stuff, and I, I posted something today uh, that I, I mentioned to you um, where I said that the literary world and the theater world, the the good things about them are different, but the bad things are the same. Mm. I mean, racism, classism, especially classism, um, the the kind of regional cattiness that happens at times, the sort of tribalism that, that occurs in a lot of those groups, uh, the short-term thinking, you know, those things affect both worlds. But the biggest difference it, between theater and literary world is in theater community is not a word theater mm -hmm. in theater community is a real fucking thing yeah and when people talk about like their their castmates and people they've worked with and the companies that you know have meant the world to them like they go above and beyond for those people and they look out for each other and that sort of connectedness and that sort of selflessness not that there isn't selfishness in the theater world but there's a whole lot of selflessness there's a whole lot of compassion and charity that go on that in the literary world is just lip service there's no real community hmm. it, it's people looking out for themselves and you only matter to them as long as you can get them published somewhere um and theater is, is what i needed it, it, that community is what I needed. Um, even, you know, the, the, the journey of this play, and we don't have to go into all of it because it's a lot, but, um, you know, it, it was supposed to be produced in 2020. Of course, pandemic canceled it, uh, like so many other productions. Um, and, you know, now this, this production that we have now, I'm, you know, I'm one of the producers, I'm, I'm doing all the marketing, um, but I have 
a director who who's bringing an amazing vision to it. Our stage manager, Veronica uh, Straight Lingo, who's it's so talented and, and I believe you know her as well. She's wonderful. Oh, yeah. She's great. Um, She's great. And our director, Noemi Negron, she, she's had an amazing career outside of Colorado, but she's lived here for seven years and has mostly um, worked with bands and mm -hmm. has mostly worked in the music scene here um, with, with uh, uh, cumbia bands and samba. I believe samba. Mm -hmm. um, she's going to listen to this and be like, I don't play samba. <laughs> <laughs> but I know cumbia is one of them. But no, um, she, she's amazing. She's this incredible artistic vision um, and is so incredibly talented. And, um, and, and I, I hope that, that, she gets, that she gets to do more shows after this uh, here in town. Um, and even though like, I don't go to all the rehearsals, I mean, like the, the whole cast, um, I mean, two, two of them are people I've only recently gotten to know, but most of them I've known for some time. And being able to pop in to the theater whenever, uh, and, and me and Alex, who, who runs the Buck Theater, like we've, we've started to really connect with each other. And I feel a warmth and a, a family embrace from them. And I had a really rough last few years, man. Mm -hmm. Like this year has been a turning point. This year has been, has been almost entirely good, if not great. But prior to that, I did like prior to beginning of like late March, early April of this year, uh, going back to beginning of 2018 when uh, when my friend Patrick died, like I've been in the shit and I've been in the, you know, I've been in the barrel. Um, and, and it was really theater and that community and that connection that you have in theater um, that acceptance that you have. Stater is still a home of misfits, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the literary world is pretentious assholes. Uh, not all of them, but <laughs> a lot, so yeah. many. Um, and, and the theater world, not that there aren't pretentious assholes there too, but I would say- Why, whatever do you mean, that. Jonathan? <laughs> I think you do know what I mean, good sir. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there, there are definitely plenty of those. But overall, when I go into a theater, I'm going to find at least two or three people who I'm going to have a great talk with. Yeah. I'm going to get a hug from someone. I'm going to get a nod of recognition. I'm going to get a laugh. I'm going to just have a great time when I'm in that space. And I needed that. I really, really needed that in my life just for my own like mental and emotional well-being but also creatively, because I, I went a little bit of time not really knowing if I was going to write again hmm. and not knowing if I had any more stories I wanted to tell. And now I do. Like now I do have nice. stories I want to tell and things I want to do and projects that I want to make happen that I'm hoping that this play allows me to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. It seems that you find that freedom in, in, in the collaborative process. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Very wow. much so. Uh, Ver Veronica said to me ye yesterday when we were changing that scene uh, that I mentioned earlier, mm. and she was like, no, I know the word is sacred. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no word is sacred. That is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about the best words. If we don't have the best words, it needs to change. 
Absolutely. Man, Jonathan, um, we don't have much time. I, I, when we get to this stage of the pod, I, I'd love to ask you what is your ghost light that you'd leave on for the next generation? And that kind of loosely translates to, like, what is that piece of advice that you wish you had when you started your career that you'd share with people coming up behind you? You know, it's um, it's to be an elder. That's what your goal should be. Like there's elders and there's old people. And I, I heard Far- Harvey Firestein, I heard him on the on Mark Merritt's podcast and he, he, he said this so succinctly and I loved it. Hmm. But it's that old people, they, they've just worked their way up the ranks. They have whatever power they have and they just want to hold on to it. And they might pay a lot of lip service to the young, but they have no intention of giving up their spot. They don't think about their legacy. They don't think about when they're going to die. They just hold on to all that they have. And they, they stop any kind of progress from coming. But elders, an elder recognizes that, and you can recognize this from the beginning. You can intentionally do this even as a young person. When I accomplish things that I'm going to accomplish, when I go through a door, I'm taking that door off its hinges. Hmm. When I get an opportunity, I'm going to remember all the people who gave me opportunities. I'm going to remember the people I wanted to give opportunities to. You're not doing this for yourself. That's what an elder knows. Hmm. You're doing this for all the possible people that you can help. And it doesn't matter how many people, it doesn't matter the scale of that help, if it's just within your neighborhood or if it's, you know, this isn't just the arts. It, it's, if it's in your neighborhood, if it's in your city, if it's in your state, doesn't matter mm-hmm. how big or small. It could be one person. The work that you dedicate your life to should always be in the service of others, ultimately. Not that you don't also look out for yourself and your own like needs and responsibilities, but that that's not it. Yeah. And an elder understands that. And an elder understands that you get to a certain point where maybe there's one or two things that you could still accomplish. But what's even more important is that you make sure all those people that you came across, young and old alike, but especially young people, young, young people are the ones who, uh, unless they come for money, um, really have no leg up in this game Mm -hmm. and so looking out for them and being like how can i cultivate what you're trying to do whether or not i understand it see an old person wants to keep things the way they were when their generation was young so they have those same values those same morals the same worldviews an elder understands like hey the way that the young think is different than the way i think and that's how i want to keep it and that young person is only going to flourish if I embolden them to be themselves. Mm-hmm. And that is something that you don't have to even get to that stage of, of being an elder to, to enact, to start doing. Just, you know, even if you start off at, at 20 and by 25, you've gotten some opportunities You've gotten like, say, a really good paid internship at like a theater or at a store or whatever it is that you're working on. 
and you know, hey, I got a buddy, or even better, I got a buddy whose cousin is like a really good person and they have this particular skill that's needed, let me put them in touch with my buddy's cousin. Hmm. Like that's being an elder, even though you're 25. Yeah. And what the world needs is more elders, you know? And I'm very fortunate for the elders that have been in my life. I'm, I've done my best to, to be an elder whenever I can be. Um, and I want to continue doing that. I want to continue getting better at it. But also this production wouldn't have happened without some elders, you know, my three producing partners, you know, mm -hmm. Kelly McAllister, Patrick Mueller, and Lisa Young, all three of them have been wonderful elders in ushering in this, this project and ushering in this play. And Alex, especially at the bug, Alex Weimer, mm -hmm. amazing man, amazing stuff that, that him and the bug are doing for, for his community, uh, as well as directly for his neighborhood. And th those are the kind of people we need more of. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, John, uh, and so much for that message. I think that's, that's really spot on and quite beautiful. The play well, is, of course, the, the play is Puerto Rican Nocturne. Um, it's opening at the bug when? August 5th, it'll run to August 21st. And we actually also will be doing dates um, October 13th through the 16th um, in Adams County at Factory 5-5. Oh, fantastic. Where can we get tickets? Uh, you can get tickets off of the Bugs website. Uh, for the August one, we're not selling the ones for October yet. Okay. But in for the August one, you can get it off the Bug website. You can also uh, check us out on Instagram at PR Nocturne Play. Um, and the, the link to the tickets is, is on that site as well. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us today and um, really thankful for your time and, and your candor. It was, a, it was a great conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, Dan, do the damn thing. Bag of frozen raspberries on the laptop. Now we are we are going to oh, start nice. cooling down. Man, frozen food is one of my favorite snacks. Hell yes, I like. I, I I am late to the game of just like throwing them in to things like mm -hmm. some cereal and letting them cool everything else down. Like they they're, yeah. they're great frozen. Yes, yes. No, I, I I've been on a smoothie kick for the last couple of months. It's great. But, uh, but no, I, I think um, the strawberries definitely go to mangoes for me. I, I love frozen mangoes. Man, mangoes, I'll tell you, I, I'm not a guy that like seeks them out in any other form but frozen. Because that's, that's a nice surprise kick in the smoothie for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, the mangoes and the avocados that you get here, they just don't compare to what you get in the Caribbean. That's what I hear. When, when you're in the tropics, it's like the mangoes are twice the size. Same with the avocados. Like two, three times the size, and they're green, and they're so full of flavor, oh. and it's it's hard to find that out. Yeah, man, man we, we gotta stop. I'm getting hungry all over again. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.